Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. This morning I want to speak to us uh, about our church theme for the next two years and link it with our sermon series on the gospel according to Luke beginning with uh, chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 at the same time. Now, after much wrestling with God over the church theme last year, it wasn't until I was preparing a sermon on Mark's gospel that I became more certain what it would be. It comes from Mark 11, verse 22, in which Jesus said to his disciples, have faith in God, have faith in God. You might recall from our sermon series on the gospel of Mark, that Jesus spoke these words in the aftermath of the cursing of a fruitless fig tree, followed by the cleansing of the temple, and then the fig tree dying the next day. All of these events are connected. The fig tree was an object lesson about how the temple had become an object of worship and a nationalistic symbol of superiority and self-righteousness of the people of Israel. The temple had become their idol. Pride, security, identity, and worth rather than God. So the fig tree was an object lesson about how the temple had become an object of worship and a nationalistic symbol of superiority and self-righteousness for the Jews, the people of Israel. The temple had become their idol, their, their, their source of pride, security, identity, and worth rather than God. And while they were outwardly religious, they were, you know, as we have a saying in Australia, you know, they were good Jews. They were good Christians, if you like. But inwardly, they didn't have a relationship with God. Inwardly, they were in rebellion against God. They were really doing their own thing. In other words, the cursing of the fig tree And the cleansing of the temple was Jesus' way of announcing God's impending judgment against the fig tree, against the temple. Just like the fig tree, the temple is barren and no longer fit for God's use. The glory days of the temple is coming to an end. The obsolete sacrificial system representing the old covenant will come to an end. It will be replaced with a new covenant, superior, a superior one on which Jesus will be the sole mediator by means of his death on the cross. The disciples, when they heard it, would have been shattered and in a state of shock because the temple was a monument of immense cultural and religious significance. And so they're confused. Their minds are spinning. How can this be? How can God do this? We don't understand. And all of us have had experiences that have left us feeling the same things toward God, haven't we? God, we just don't get what you are doing. And it's in this context that Jesus says to them and says to us, don't freak out, guys. Don't withdraw into unbelief whenever God does something that makes no sense to you simply because you're ill-equipped to understand. And Job is a perfect example of this. Don't allow your disappointment with God because of unanswered prayers. Turn into bitterness towards Him. Have faith in God. Keep trusting God. 
Let your tr trust and faith be in God and in God alone, not in yourselves, not in your ability to comprehend things. Let your faith be in God alone, not in anyone else, not your good works, not your intellect, not your possessions, not anything that you think will provide you security. Immediately after, Jesus expands his point further on faith by talking about prayer. And here are the rest of Jesus' words from verse 23. Have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. I'm not going to unpack all of that, but I'll just highlight two important things about our faith in God. The first thing is the corporate nature and expression of faith highlighted in this passage. Individual faith matters, obviously, as does one's personal and private prayer life. But in this passage, Jesus is actually talking about the communal expression of faith through prayer, evident in the fact that verses 22, 24, and 25 are expressed in the plural. It is the people of God expressing their faith corporately in Him through prayer that can tell mountains to move. The second thing in this passage that we see is that Jesus places great emphasis on the necessity of persevering in our faith toward God. As a New Testament scholar explains, and I quote, the exhortation in, verse, in chapter 11, verses 23 to 24, contains a series of four verbs in the present tense, a grammatical structure that strongly accentuates the need for continuous prayer. Believe. Pray, ask for, believe. Our passage then is not an example of magical thinking. It emphasizes sharply the necessity of perseverance in the face of a seemingly contradictory reality. In other words, Jesus is saying, keep believing, keep asking for, keep praying, keep believing. Keep having faith in God, even if a mountain, even if the mountain that you're praying against shows no sign of budging, because God may have a better solution than the one you have assumed and expected. Don't pull away from God. Keep going to God. Keep wrestling with Him. God is good all of the time, and He knows exactly what He's doing. When I look back over my life, the times where I have experienced growth spurts in my relationship with God have been times when I have wrestled with God over difficult issues. It is Keller who said that God often has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into one. I'll repeat that. It is Keller who said that God often has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into one. That's why James writes, count it all joy, brethren, when you go through various trials and testings because God uses it to produce solid faith in Him. 
Our faith, therefore, matters a great deal to Jesus. How do we know this? Well, if you read the Gospels, the only time Jesus was ever amazed, the only time Jesus marveled was in response to people's, either in people's faith in him or lack of it. In Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13, we read the following. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Jesus was amazed at the faith that the centurion displayed. Now contrast this with the next passage in which Jesus was also amazed. In Mark 6, verses 1 to 6, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And there's question mark over his legitimacy. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. And he could not perform any miracles at Nazareth except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed, but in a negative way. It was amazed at their lack of faith. Why is our faith such a big deal to Jesus? Why is our faith such a big deal to Jesus? Andy Stanley's insight is quite helpful. He writes, faith or trust is at the center of every healthy relationship. As trust goes, so goes the relationship. A break in trust signals a break in the relationship. That's relationship 101 right there. Sin was introduced to the world through a choice by Adam and Eve not to trust in God. In the Garden of Eden, humanity's relationship with, with God was broken when Eve and Adam quit trusting. God has been on a quest ever since to re-engage with mankind in a relationship characterized by trust or by faith. Just as humankind's relationship with God was destroyed through a lack of faith, so it would be restored through an expression of the same. 
At its core, uh, Christianity is an invitation to re-enter a relationship of trust with a father. It's not about rules, although rules have their place. Fundamentally, the gospel, Christianity, is an invitation from Jesus to all of us to re-engage God, to re-enter into a relationship of trust with the Father. At the cross, sin was given, and we were invited to trust. It makes perfect sense that salvation comes by faith, not obedience. Think of Abraham, whose trust in God was so special to God that he credited it to him as righteousness. Walking by faith, again, is simply living as if God is who he says he is, and that's faith right there, that God is who he says he is, and that he will do everything he has promised to do. As a person's confidence in God grows, he or she matures. Our faith in God is so important, so significant, that the author of Hebrews states very forcefully in chapter 11, verse 6, that no one or that it is impossible to please God without faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. So growing our faith, therefore, has got to be our top priority. Remember, faith or trust is at the center of every relationship, healthy relationship. As trust goes, so goes the relationship. How does our faith grow? How does our faith grow? What grows our faith? After many years of involvement in discipleship and helping people grow their faith and listening to people's stories about the key moments that were instrumental in bringing about deep and personal transformation to their faith in God, with, uh, to their faith in God, Stanley saw over and over and over again five common factors, what he calls five uh, faith catalysts. And these faith catalysts will shape our preaching outline over the next two years. These faith catalysts are not steps. They're not magical pills. That is, if you do this, then this will necessarily happen. These are principles. I modified the first one slightly, but the rest are as he has written. Here are the five faith catalysts. Number one, what grows our faith? God's Word and the application of it. I can't stress that enough. It's not just God's Word in and of itself, but the application of it. What are you doing with what you know? What are you doing about what God is saying to you? Number two, private disciplines. Number three, personal ministry. Four, providential relationships. And lastly, the pivotal circumstances. So when we go to the book of Job towards the end of the year, what grew his faith was a pivotal circumstance I was riddled with suffering and pain and sorrow, but it changed his life. Now, to the first faith catalyst, and I have picked Luke's gospel to begin our sermon series deliberately, a series that we will look at over the next two years. It is fair to say that we are well and truly over covid We've been asked to do so much pivoting in the past two years, we're getting sore heads from it. Do this, don't do that. This is a new regulation. There's a new standard of procedure and protocols, etc. We've been asked to do so much. We've been asked to change so much in the last two years. The virus is impacting us not only physically, but socially, psychologically, and spiritually. 
relational disconnections, the constant unknowing and the loss of control due to changing of plans, and very often at a moment's notice in response to government and health directives, just to mention a few examples, have left quite a number of people gloomy, exhausted, distressed, tired, and in a state of hopelessness and in a state of anxiety for which there are no vaccinations. And this cloud of despondency and despair show no signs of abating as COVID enters it enter its third year. Many questions remain. Is there going to, going to be another variant of the virus in 2022? What kind will it be? Will it be as contagious as the Omicron? Will life go back to normal? Or will it at all go back to normal? In truth, in reality, uncertainty has always been a part of life. And never more so than today. All COVID has done is that it has brought this reality into a sharper focus. No matter how well we plan, and there is nothing wrong with planning, many things in life are outside of our control. Life is filled with a lot of unknowns. And yet we yearn to feel safe and have a sense of control over our lives. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. I'm not sure living in a prolonged period of uncertainty is good for our well-being, notwithstanding the fact that, uh, that many don't have an option and that also uh, all of us cope with uncertainty very differently. What do we do? if uncertainty is an inevitable part of life? Well, we can turn to strategies in self-help books or those offered by various mental health professionals and implement them to alleviate our anxieties and better manage aspects of our lives that we have no control over and face life's uncertainties with greater confidence. Most certainly, some of these uh, advice and information that you can source from the internet or if you're seeing a psychologist or counselor will be helpful. There's no question about that because if they're consistent with God's truth, it will work because all truth is God's truth. However, I have to tell you that they only scratch the surface and they do not address the root problem of humanity, uh, of humanity which Stanley puts forward as a broken relationship with God through a choice not to trust him, a choice to live independently of him. See, none of these methods will address that. You know, deep breathing. But if the heart of the issue is that you are not trusting God, no matter how deeply you breathe and how well you regulate your timetable, it's, it's not going to address that root issue. Because that is the root issue. We're freaking out. We, 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 we lose all sense of control and orientation. We lose our balance because, in essence, the root problem is that we're not putting our trust in God. We're not turning to God with our anxieties, with the unknowns that we face and the stresses that produce. 
We don't turn to God. We turn to ourselves. We turn inward, and we try and fix it that way. And so you might get some relief. You might get some breakthrough, but they're not long-term solutions. Our problem is that our ultimate uh, sense of well-being, peace, and security can only come not by asserting control over our lives in our strength and wisdom, but by trusting and yielding the control of our lives to an ever-loving and faithful God who doesn't change. So while much of life changes in an uncertain, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he invites us, he calls us to trust in him. That God is forever who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. That is the one certainty that we must have and grow in in times of uncertainty. And this is the one overarching reason why Luke wrote his gospel for Theophilus and a wider audience. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Just a little bit about Luke. He's a doctor who also authored the book of Acts, as Daryl prayed earlier. He was a skilled linguist, a good historian, and a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. He was a Gentile, perhaps a Syrian from Antioch, the only Gentile author in the Bible. It's clear from verse 2 of chapter 1 that Luke was not an apostle, nor was he an eyewitness, the first eyewitness of the life of Jesus. But his knowledge, however, of Jesus is based on careful and thorough research of other written accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, such as Mark's gospel and interviews with a number of firsthand eyewitnesses. The Greek word translated as eyewitnesses is related to the English word autopsy. So, so Luke has performed an autopsy, if you like, on the life and the ministry of Jesus. In those days, no evidence carried more weight than the testimony of a reputable witness. The people, in other words, Luke interviewed with those who, know, who knew Jesus intimately. This explains why there's so much fresh material in Luke's gospel, about 30% compared with the other gospels. Theophilus, which means beloved by God or friend of God, seems to be a person of wealth and prominent standing based on the title Most Excellent, which is found, in three other, uh, found on three other occasions in the New Testament and was used in reference to the Roman governors Felix, Festus, and I can't remember, uh, it might be just the two governors. It is likely that Theophilus financed the publication of Luke X. Probably, Theophilus was also a fairly young Gentile believer, trying to work out how he fits, of how, how he fits in God's new community of Jesus' followers called the church. He's trying to work out his faith. He's seeing Christians suffering for their faith, and he's struggling with that. 
what's expected of him. He's wrestling with how God can allow Christians to suffer. In short, he's wrestling with uncertainties about his faith. To Theophilus and to all of us, in whatever stage of life we're at, when doubt, fear, trouble, uncertainty, and anxiety assail us, those of us whose faith is being tested and stretched right now, Luke writes to assure all of us that the foundation of our faith is solid, it's sound, and it's based on the facts of history backed by reliable witness testimonies that God really did step into history in the person of Jesus Christ to offer salvation to all people according to his divine plan, that through Jesus we have been adopted into God's family as his dearly beloved children, and that he offers more than forgiveness. He offers meaning. He offers purpose in life, that in times of struggle and times of suffering, the Spirit of God will be our source of comfort, a source of strength, a source of encouragement and wisdom. If we want to be free from a downward spiral of endless what-ifs and worst-case scenarios about COVID, about what tomorrow, what our jobs, what our future may bring, the one all-important, all-essential certainty we can know and must know and grow in is the certainty that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He is going to do. And just to be clear, when we talk about having this God certainty, we're not talking about a God certainty where we could put him neatly into our boxes, but a certainty that says like King David, though your goodness and mercy and love will follow me, but if I have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are still my good shepherd. I will fear no evil. You are my God. That's the certainty, your faith, that Luke is writing to us about. I'd like to conclude with a story. It was 1741, and an old man was wandering the streets of London. His name was George Frederick Handel. At this point in his life, he was angry. His mind kept going back to the time when he was famous and had the applause of royalty and the, and the elite of London. But now his mind was full of despair and hopelessness about the future, for the applause was gone. Others were now in the spotlight, and envy began to possess him. Added to that, a cerebral hemorrhage paralyzed his right side. He could no longer write, and doctors gave gave him very little hope for recovery. That's a very challenging thing to go through. I'm sure you read about uh, recently this uh, Australian uh, uh, winter athlete uh, who, who killed herself because, because of the injury she suffered when she was practicing. She wasn't able to ski anymore. I think that was a chosen sport. And so she missed out on the entire Beijing Olympic, Winter Olympic Games. 
when she couldn't hack it. What am I if I can't ski? Who am I if I can't ski? I'm worthless. The old composer traveled to France and began to soak in the baths, which were said to have healing effects. The hot mineral baths seemed to help, but it, and his health began to improve. Eventually, he was able to write once more, and his success returned. But then he faced another reversal of fortune. Queen Caroline, the wife of King George II, the King of Britain, from 1683 to 1760, who had been handled... Handel's staunch supporter died. England found itself in hard economic times, and heating large auditoriums for concerts were not permitted. His performances were canceled, and he began to wonder where on earth God was. Then one night, as he returned from his walk, Charles Jennings, his friend, was waiting at his home. Jennings explained that he had just finished writing a text for a musical that covered both the Old and New Testaments and believed that Handel was the man to set it to music. Handel at first was indifferent, as he, but, uh, but was indifferent as he began to read the words which Jennings had put together. But then his eyes fell on such words as he was despised and rejected of men. He looked for someone to have pity on him, but there was no man. Neither found he any to comfort him. His eyes raised to the words, he trusted in God. God did not leave his soul in hell. He will give you rest. And finally, his eyes stopped on the words, I know that my Redeemer lives. He became aware of the presence of God suddenly in a new and profound way. As he picked up his pen, the Spirit of God was moving and music seemed to flow through him. He finished the first part in only seven days. That's astonishing. Those of you who, who know what, what it involves to write music. The second section was completed in six days. Many will remember that when the classical work was first performed in London and the hallelujah chorus was sung by the choir, King George II was so moved that he stood to his feet. And to this day, People still rise to their feet as the great chorus is sung in praise to God. And reflecting on Handel's Messiah, G Joseph McCabe, an author, wrote the following, quote, Never again are we to look at the stars as we did when we were children and wonder how far it is to God. A being outside of our world would be a spectator, looking on but taking no part in this life, where we try to be brave despite all the bafflement. A God who created and withdrew could be mighty, but he could not be loved. Who could love a God so remote when suffering is our lot? Our God is closer than our problems, for they're out there to be faced. He is here beside us, Emmanuel. This is the God, brothers and sisters. Jesus calls us to put our faith in. And it is just one of many reasons. And so as you read and study and meditate on Luke's well-researched, thorough and reliable account of Jesus' birth, ministry, life, death, and resurrection, do it, but answer the statement. Reasons why... I can have faith in God. Reasons why I can put my trust in God. So that's your heading. 
the overarching heading, as you read from chapters 1 to 12, just put in dot form under that heading, why I can have reason to put my trust and faith in God. Approach this exercise expecting God to meet you personally and speak to you so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Let us pray. Lord, I pray exactly for that. There are several themes, there are several purposes, several reasons why Luke wrote his gospel, but the one thing that we know is located in verse 4. He wrote so that Theophilus, so that we live in the 21st century as we read about your birth, Jesus, your life, your ministry, your death, and your resurrection, that we would grow in the certainty of the things we have been taught. And the most important certainty that we need to grow in and must have and can have is the certainty that you are who you say you are and that we can trust you to do what you say you will do. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.